Hi, friends. A quick message for Michigan listeners. If any of our Michigan principals are attending the Michigan Elementary and Middle School Principals Association Conference this December, be sure to go visit our good friend and show sponsor, Pete, from Summer Pops Math Workbooks at the Vendor Booths. You can review Summer Pops for yourself and see why more schools are adopting Summer Pops as their easy-to-use summer math program. If you can't make the MIMSPA conference, you can still check out Summer Pops at summerpopsworkbooks.com. That's summerpopsworkbooks.com. Principal Matters Podcast, episode 370. Hi, friends. This is Will Parker, host of Principal Matters, the school leaders podcast, where each week we bring you inspiring, innovative, and imaginative ideas for your own school leadership. This week, we're talking about middle school superpowers with my superhero friend, Phyllis Fagel. Phyllis L. Fagel, LCPC, is a school counselor in Washington, D.C., a therapist who works with children and teens in private practice and an author and journalist. She's the author of Middle School Matters, the 10 key skills kids need to thrive in middle school and beyond, and how parents can help. And her newest book, Middle School Superpowers, Raising Resilient Teens in Turbulent Times. Phyllis is a frequent contributor to the Washington Post and freelances for publications such as Psychology Today, CNN, Working Mother, U.S. News and World Report, and Your Teen. Her ideas have been shared in outlets including the New York Times, Atlantic, The New Yorker, Edutopia, Mindshift, The Chicago Tribune, and NPR. She has three children and lives with her husband in Bethsaida, Maryland. Phyllis Fagel, what a pleasure. I get to the privilege of talking to you through Zoom and our listeners get the privilege of hearing your voice. Welcome back to Principal Matters, because you were a guest back with your first book. Why don't you fill in the gap on that intro and tell listeners something else they may be surprised to know about you? Sure, and uh, thank you for bringing me back. I think I met you at a middle school conference back in 2017. Mm -hmm. So now I consider you an old friend. So it's really nice to talk to someone about middle school who I know is just as passionate about education as I am. In terms of filling in the gaps in my own background, I think something that might surprise people is to know that I did not start out in counseling. And even when I switched to counseling, I did not start out in middle school. In fact, I did just about every other level before I made it to middle school. And the reason I ended up writing about middle school is because when I landed in that middle school for the first time, I had my middle school students, I also had two middle schoolers in my house for the first time, my two older kids, and started scouring the literature for anything that might help me parent my kids better and also counsel my students better. And what I discovered is that there was very little out there, very little research, very little writing about this phase, which I consider to be so distinct and different than either early elementary age kids or high school aged kids. Well, the first time that we met, I believe was at an AMLE national conference. And now I'm forgetting where we were. Were we in Philadelphia? Philadelphia. Yeah, we were in Philadelphia and you were presenting. And then we ended up like sitting beside each other, working on notes. And suddenly it struck up a conversation and became friends. 
and I have followed your work ever since. And of course, when you came out with your first book, I couldn't wait to get you on. And now your new book has come out. We're recording this session in the summer, but it won't come out this recording until the fall. And off the air, you and I were just talking about the the flurry of activities that happen with a new book. So Phyllis, I'm going to ask you a lot of questions about this book, but I just want to invite you to go whatever direction that you want to go in this conversation. You have been a practicing educator with many years of experience in school counseling. And so before, and I know this leads into your book, but I, I want to begin here. I'm just curious on your perspective of the growing rates of anxiety among our youth, especially in the middle years. So talk about that for a little bit, because listeners here that work in schools live that experience, especially those that work with middle schoolers. But sometimes I think it's helpful to have a perspective of someone who works with students directly uh, uh, helping them through anxiety. So I think that there are a few ways that middle schoolers stand out as different when it comes to mental health issues, anxiety, depression. One is that they are much less likely than older adolescents to ask for help. So it's much easier for parents to miss that their kids are struggling. When it comes to something as awful as suicide, even though rates have been going up for a long time and they have gotten worse, I think something that people don't really understand about this age group is that only half the time are they suicidal because of mental health issues or mental health challenges. Half the, the other half of the time, it's related to impulsivity. Something goes awry. And middle schoolers are so prone to catastrophizing, to having trouble pulling their thoughts back to the middle. And so things can take them off the rails pretty quickly. Uh, the good news is that it doesn't take a lot often to bring them back to, which is the upside. Another thing that sets middle schoolers apart is that they have a much harder time than older teens at knowing what's going on in their internal life, labeling their feelings. It's very hard to know who to ask for help, when to ask for help, how to ask for help when you don't know what you're feeling. And especially when you're in the midst of puberty, it's very hard for them to delineate between the mood fluctuations that are related to hormones versus something like anxiety or depression. So we have all of these added ch challenges. And then on top of all of that, in recent years, we've had a tremendous amount of uncertainty and instability. We've had the behavior contagion element because so many of the adults in their lives have been struggling too. And middle schoolers are not likely to ask their parents for help if they think they're not at their peak. They're far more likely to ask a peer many of whom also are impaired. And so when they do figure out that they need help and ask for help, often they're not going to somebody qualified to help them or even equipped emotionally to give of themselves in that way anyway. Wow. Okay. So let's park here for just a moment because I've also had the privilege of sitting through some of your presentations and one of the things I appreciate about you, Phyllis, is your ability to give people practical responses. So let's let's sit here for just a moment. I'm an educator or a parent who wants to respond to the fact that my middle schooler may struggle to know how to say they need help. They may have difficulty describing their needs. They may, when they do, reach out to the wrong person. So what are some steps educators may need to be taking in order to help encourage, target the kinds of environments where students might 
be willing to, to speak and talk and ask for help. So the good news is there's so much that educators can do. And I'm speaking about all of the adults in a school building when I say that. And so many educators right now are overwhelmed or overburdened or feel ill-equipped to help with mental health challenges. And when I tell educators, and I say this often, we're all counselors now, I don't mean that you need to be a licensed mental health therapist. What I mean is that we're at this juncture in history where every single one of us has to be incredibly well-versed in the needs of the developmental phase and equipped to give them the information and the support they need to thrive and to be resilient. So some of the very, very basic things that teachers can do, and each teacher should play to their strengths. You know, one teacher might be the person who is really great at having those one-on-one -on -one meaningful substantive conversations with kids. Another one might be a really good observer and notices that there's that one kid that never has anyone to sit with and passes it on to someone who might be able to support them. Someone else might have a really strong mindfulness practice in their own life and they bring some of those skills to the classroom. So really figuring out what it is that you can offer. But some of the things that every educator can do are simply identifying as a helper, defining anxiety and depression for kids and explaining when they might need to ask for help, making sure they understand that when they ask for help, that it should be an adult and that it might even need to be an adult with some specialized knowledge. And then letting them know that they're a helper, that even if they're not the ones who can help them feel better, they can be the bridge to getting them this, the support they need. And really also, talking about how it's important to do the same for your friends. And when teachers do that, in my experience, or when I do that in a classroom, I teach health and wellness, I have never not had at least one or two kids come to see me that same day to either ask for help for themselves or to express concern about a friend. Mm -hmm. And then on top of all of that, just coping out loud, making sure that your students know that you also struggle at times. And so if you come to school and you're cranky because you had a flat tire on the way to school or you overslept and didn't have time for your coffee to say to your class, you know what? I didn't mean to snap just then, but I'm really overtired. I realize now that I didn't get enough sleep. So tonight I'm going to go to bed early and then even better come in the next day and say, you know what? I went to bed early last night. You might notice I'm in a better mood. So we want them to be really seeing us model the kind of behavior that we want them to exhibit in their own lives. Wow. Okay. So I'm going to pause there for just a moment because there's so much value in what you just said, Phyllis. And I'm a person that loves to summarize. So every individual has their own strengths that they can bring to the school setting, whether that's strengths in one-on-one -on -one conversations, being an observer, sharing their own mindfulness practices, but then everyone can play a part by identifying themselves as helpers, being able to define and explain how we deal with anxiety and cope, and then encouraging kids to be helpers too. I love that. And I love that the last point you made is so important. Learning, I've never heard anyone say it the way you just did, learning to cope out loud, which is recognizing when others need to know where you are emotionally so that first of all, you're not putting them in uncomfortable places, but also because you're modeling for them. This is how you, this is how I manage it when I'm tired or when I'm getting grumpy or when I'm hungry or whatever it is. 
And so hopefully that modeling gives them an opportunity to do that too. I'll tell a quick story. When I was a um, high school English teacher, um, I learned really quickly that kids respond well when you, you apologize. So, so losing your temper or saying something that's inappropriate or pushing them too hard in tasks, um, it's so important for, for teachers to recognize the opportunity to step back into the situations and just admit I was wrong. And, and when I figured that out as, as a young teacher, I, I began to recognize the empathy that my students would show me and because I was trying to show that, them that same empathy. And, and, and you know, Phyllis, this works across the school community. When leaders demonstrate that same kind of follow through with people, when you say something that's too hard, but then you go back and apologize for it, um, or you, what you just said, demonstrate to others when you're trying to cope out loud through difficulties, that's just so powerful. What, what do you want to add to that? Well, I, I love that. And I really, I agree that you get what you give. And one of the things that teachers, I think, can keep in mind, especially if you say something with a sharp tone, middle schoolers are so exquisitely sensitive and they tend to personalize everything. And if you don't pause and apologize or explain why you had that sharp tone, they're going to carry that with them and they're going to ruminate and they may come to some wrong conclusions about whether or not you're rooting for them or care about them. And so when you let them know that it has nothing to do with them, you not only smooth out that relationship, but you have kids who are far more likely to work hard for you and show you that respect as well. So let me ask you this question. And let me say, before I ask the question, let me set some context. Developmental stages, recognizing appropriate developmental stages among students, wherever they are in that developmental stage, is not so that you can um, focus on where they're weak, but what you do is you focus on where they actually are resilient. And so, um, so talk about for just a little bit, what are some of the superpowers that middle that you've seen middle school students being able to exhibit and why are they foundational for how we can help them? So that's sort of a two-part question. So mm -hmm. there are the superpowers in my book, the 12 superpowers in my book, which really do align with the developmental phase because they not only play on kids' strengths, but they draw on their needs as well. Mm -hmm. And as I always tell kids when they're complaining about some kind of perceived weakness, there's at least two strengths in every weakness. If you have ADHD, you might be the person who is the first to get the conversation started in class, or you might have really divergent thinking. And we want kids to think more expansively at a time when they're so sensitive and insecure and self-conscious. And we also want to be using the strengths they already bring to the table. So we know they're filled with a sense of purpose. One of the comments I make in my book is that no one has more, no one is more convinced that they can change the world simply by writing a very coherent petition than a middle schooler. They still very much believe in equity and fairness. They think that they can make a difference. They want to make a difference. They're funny, they're passionate. They have so much energy, they're sponges. They still really care what adults think. And so that gives us a lot to work with. And within those strengths, 
it's sometimes a double-edged sword. So they're funny, but their social skills are weak, especially now. So funny can land mean. They need a lot of coaching. They think that they can change the world maybe with a well-worded petition. However, they need to know that there are times that they have to sit back and simply accept that the rules are the rules, which can be challenging. They're incredibly passionate, but they that also comes with a dose of impulsivity. So we're trying to rein them in a little bit, but also let them fly without killing their spirit. And it's that push and pull that is so such a delicate dance, but if we get it right, we do turn out middle schoolers who have these incredible superpowers. And the biggest one of all is that they're resilient. And we know that that's a skill that's so sorely needed right now. Support for Principal Matters comes from DigiCoach and its walk-through tool. When Kathleen Beckham was a district director. She would walk through classrooms and see teachers engaging students in learning or observe elements missing in their instruction. And her biggest challenge was finding the time to give those teachers meaningful and helpful feedback that they would value as coaching and not correction. In the past, Kathleen spent hours in follow-up email exchanges after informal walkthroughs, but that all changed when she discovered DigiCoach. She now has a tool that can help her send immediate feedback from her phone or her tablet. DigiCoach is a fully customizable tool created by school leaders for school leaders to not only collect walkthrough data, but also ensure every teacher receives ongoing support, feedback, and coaching. It features thousands of pre-written research-based commendations and coaching tips that can be included along with your own observation comments and a follow-up email ensuring all teachers receive effective and timely support. Are you ready to make the most of your walkthroughs with a tool that saves you time and enhances meaningful feedback to your teachers? Go to digicoach.com to learn more and please tell them Principal Matters recommended you check them out. That's digicoach.com. Support for Principal Matters comes from Aptigy. More than 3,500 school districts have switched to Aptigy since 2016 for one reason. Aptigy powers the identity of your school. We all know that communication is important, but what are you communicating? If it's just information, you're missing an opportunity to build a school brand around your strengths and values. What I love about Aptigy is how they think and talk about communication as a critical component of building your brand that engages your entire school community. With the Thrill Share platform, Aptigy brings everything you need for school marketing and communications together into a single mobile app. Write a story once and send it across your school website and mobile app, Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, text messages, and voice calls. By making it easy to share stories about your strengths, you can control the conversation around your brand. Learn more about Aptigy at Aptigy.com and tell them that Principal Matters sent you. So I want to dig a little bit into some of the content that you unpack and a couple of words that I want you to help us understand, um, especially when it comes to a couple of the superpowers that you outline in your new book. Can you describe what you mean by four field? And oh, so super force field is one of the 
superpowers in the book. And it really is about establishing healthy boundaries. And I think that's a real challenge. I think we spend so much time trying to raise kind kids who should give to others that particularly not to overgeneralize, but particularly for girls, sometimes they can give to the point of depletion and they can struggle to set those boundaries. So if a friend is really upset and is texting them late at night, they might feel like they can't get offline and get the sleep they need because somebody is in distress. Or if a teacher asks them to sit on an interview panel or do something to support a school initiative, they might feel like they can't admit or say that they feel very overwhelmed already as it is with their sports and academics. And all kids have a little less stamina right now. And so Super Force Field is about teaching kids how to give without getting pulverized, how to be somebody who has the self-awareness and the self-advocacy skills and the confidence and the tact to be able to draw the line, whether they need to disengage from a really tough relationship that is not working for them or they need to push back on some expectations that uh, adults or other people are putting on them and say, nope, this is what I need to do to be healthy, to have a balanced life. We want kids to be able to do that. Next, let's talk about optimism because you say that optimism is an important superpower. So how does it, first of all, define that for me? And then I'm gonna ask you a follow-up question that may be going a little sideways. But I'm just curious, how does um, your definition of optimism differ from what I'm hearing a lot of people call toxic positivity? Yeah, and that's a really good question. I think much like the word resilience, optimism is really misunderstood as well. So an optimist is somebody who understands that when they experience a challenge or a setback or a disappointment, almost all of the time it's temporary and related to that scenario. It's not something that's permanent. It's not something that has to define them. It's an obstacle to be overcome, not a setback that will defeat them. And we want to cultivate their ability to be optimistic and not all kids are born optimistic. And in fact, you know, I, I have a term for kids who are relentlessly negative, I call it Eeyore syndrome. And we all know students who really have a problem for every solution and have a very hard time assuming positive intent, whether it's something that a peer said or something that a teacher said. You know, an optimist, if they don't do well on a quiz, will say, all right, let me think about what I can do to improve this situation so it doesn't happen again. Do I need to get help? Do I need to study in a group? Did I study the wrong worksheet? A pessimist is going to either be passive and say, well, there's no point in trying. I'm just going to fail at math forever. And I suck at this, or they're going to be really reactive and maybe they'll, you know, rail that the teacher is unfair and rip up the paper or cry. And we want kids to be proactive, to be really focusing on what is that one step you can take to ensure that this is temporary, that this is situational. How can you learn from it and grow from it? And at a time when we're seeing such a huge increase in trauma as well, uh, there is such a thing as post-traumatic growth. We want kids to understand that they can suffer from something that was you know, traumatic and they can grow from it, learn from it and come out on the other side stronger for that struggle. 
So I have a couple of follow-up questions for you, Phyllis, and because having you in the room is is a privilege, because I, I know you think about these things a lot. So I'm going to take advantage of the moment. So I have two two follow-ups. One is the the findings that girls and LGBTQ youth especially struggle with self-harm, anxiety, suicidal thoughts at a higher rate, it seems, than other youth. Speak to that for just a moment. In your experience, um, what are some of the interventions that may be helpful targets for those student populations that maybe educators need to keep in mind? So I think one, one thing I do want to just clarify is that, yes, uh, any kid who's in a marginalized group, whether they're a racial minority or an ethnic minority or LGBTQ, anybody who is witnessing, experiencing the divisiveness in society right now, the pure fear of any sort of difference is internalizing that and suffering from that. And so the reason that they're suffering from mental health issues at higher rates is not because they're black or because they're gay. It's because they're living in a society in which they're not accepted for whom for who they are. So the number one thing that we can do is embrace differences to create opportunities for them to be with other kids who relate to what they're dealing with, to be educating all kids about the fact that everybody has a different backstory, but everybody is worthy of respect and helping them feel more comfortable interacting with kids from different backgrounds. I love basic things like mix it up lunches. In fact, when we did mix it up lunches at my school and we had kids choose their table by pulling a number out of a basket and then we had conversation starters at their table. Afterwards, a kid came up to me and said, I didn't have any of my friends at my table, I felt so uncomfortable, don't ever do that again. And five seconds later, another kid came up to me and said, can we do that every day for the first time I knew where to sit in the cafeteria? Oh and that's why we do those kinds of activities because for the former kind of kid, we know that kids who can float, who can befriend kids who are different than they are, have an easier time socially in high school and beyond. And for the kids who feel adrift and who maybe are lonely or ostracized or excluded, we provide them with a bit of a safe harbor, if only for that one lunch period. Mm. I'm going to repeat some things you just said, because I just think they're so good. Um, embracing differences and emphasizing how everyone deserves respect and dignity. Isn't it crazy, Phyllis, that we have to say that out loud? But we live in a time when it's such a good reminder to all of us that, because notice the 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 children that have, the youth that have been identified in surveys as having higher rates of anxiety also include girls. You know, so are we going to ask? So so the, the solution is well, don't be a girl. The, sol <laughs> the solution is how do we treat every student in our populations with the dignity and respect for who they are? So that they feel loved and supported, so that they can learn, and so um, I, so thank you for that feedback. Question number two, um, I did an episode recently on some feedback from a book by Gene Twing 
on um, the effects of social media on student anxiety. And I didn't share this with you ahead of time. So I'm sorry to ask you to speak to something that I didn't give you the research on in advance. But I'm, I know you're aware of this, that the younger students are introduced to social media, the higher their propensity seems to be towards anxiety. And so I'm just curious as someone who works so intimately in the school setting, how do you manage conversations around that with students um, and parents and teachers? Because that seems to be an ongoing issue that I'm hearing from educators is, is learning how to build better awareness and practice around the use of social media. I think the best thing we can do, the most effective thing we can do to help kids is to teach them to have a bit of metacognition about their social media use. And that might mean that for a while they keep a journal and see how they feel when they get on versus when they log off. They might discover as one of my kids did that they don't really feel very good when they get off of Snapchat. It just doesn't seem like it's positive a place to them, but they love looking at animal videos on TikTok. That's always a fun distraction. So that's one way to really help kids think about it, to almost to really individualize their use and help them be really reflective about what does and doesn't work for them. Another thing we can do is have them come up with set policies. So that might be that they log off at a certain time. It might be that they keep a list of everything that goes into a balanced day in their opinion, and they don't get online until they've done everything else on that list. I, I also like to share the advice that comes from Lori Santos, who taught the happiness course at Yale. She advises kids and adults, by the way, so much of this applies to us as well, to ask themselves three questions, which all begin with W. So she uses the acronym WWW. It's what now? mean, uh, or, or what for, meaning what are you using it for? Are you using it to look something up that you need for a class? Are you using it to FaceTime with your grandmother? Are you using it to find out if somebody went to a party without you? The second W is why now? Are you procrastinating? Are you lonely? Are you bored? And the third W is what else? Meaning what is it crowding out? What should you be doing instead? And often that's sleep or time with friends. You had asked about the mental health challenge earlier and so much of it is due to loneliness, especially in this age group. Kids have had fewer opportunities to practice in the last four years or so. And they're still trying to make up for lost time because it's such a developmental imperative for them to figure out who they are, what their friend, who their friend group is. And we want to make sure that we are helping them find those opportunities. And especially for boys, and boys are not immune from mental health problems, even if girls are disproportionately afflicted. A lot of boys are uncomfortable with those face-to-face -face interactions. And they use the screen as a way to connect without having to carry the burden of holding a conversation. And we want to make sure that we're helping kids see that it's just another way of being avoidant. It, and the only way to get over a phobia is through small, or to extinguish a phobia is through small exposures. So the more that they can practice being brave, having those face-to-face -face conversations, initiating an invitation to a potential friend, the better they're going to feel. Phyllis, I so appreciate how you almost always bring your ideas back to practice. And so for Principal Matters listeners, um, not only will you get a copy in the show notes of the bio and the questions that we've discussed, but also I'll include notes on 
uh, a few of the ideas that you've already mentioned, mix it up lunches, tracking time and feelings when on social media, and those three questions, what for, why now, what else? I, I want to mention this to you, Phyllis, because it's on my mind and you're a friend that I think would um, resonate with, with these thoughts, but I'm a big fan of the podcast Hidden Brain. And recently there was an episode with Anna Lemke who wrote Dopamine Nation, Finding Balance in the Age of Indulgence. And it was a two-part series called The Paradox of Pleasure. And it was eye-opening for me because in that conversation, um, she explains how all of us, whether it's with social media or any other addictive behaviors, um, find ourselves, especially in the modern age in which we live now, um, being overwhelmed with dopamine, being overwhelmed with stimuli. And so I, I, I'm sure you um, encounter that too in terms of, especially middle schoolers, love stimuli. And so um, I'm just curious, um, and, and again, I'm sorry for putting you on the spot, but I, I love picking your brain. Um, what thoughts you would add to that in terms of also helping students discover their superpowers when they are being overwhelmed with, with options? Yes, and dopamine is a powerful chemical. I will say that it can be used for good too mm -hmm. for kids who are stuck or can't get started or procrastinating. If we can get them to do one small thing, even putting their name and the date on a piece of paper, mm -hmm. we can give them that small hit of dopamine that they get just from the, the pleasure of seeing that they can get started and that can be enough to keep them going. But we wanna make sure that kids don't lose interest in the activities that they enjoy, but that don't give them as big of a hit of dopamine. So for instance, research shows that kids who spend time online and are getting their dopamine hits from those likes on social media or from getting points in a video game, if they spend more than an hour at a time doing those activities, they start to lose their, they get a smaller hit of dopamine. They get, take less pleasure out of their offline activities that they really also like. Things like maybe baking cupcakes with a friend or going for a bike ride or reading a good book. So I found that when you can explain that science to kids and rather than have a huge battle with them over how much time they're spending online chasing those likes to say, you know, how about you take a break every hour for at least 15 minutes and try something else? Often what happens is that they end up enjoying whatever it is they're doing instead, and they don't come right back to the computer. But that's often an easier sell, especially for kids who are pretty addicted to that time online. Well, I know we could chase that rabbit down another hole, but man, that's just so much wisdom. They're helping students. I love how you said let's take advantage of the, the positive dopamine hits too, which is helping them get started, identifying alternative ways that they can stay connected with friends and people and activities. And, and those are some of the best parts of school, which is learning that helps students discover, be inspired, be creative, be involved, not just academics, but academics should include that too, but also those great activities. Yeah. So so as we wrap up, I want to give you an opportunity to, first of all, congratulations on a new book. And I know that you will be keynoting at AMLE's next national conference. And so why don't you give um, listeners a, an idea of how they can stay connected to you um, if they want to see you and, and, and be, have an opportunity to hear you keynote. When is that happening? And then uh, any parting words of advice? Uh, so first, uh 
AMLE is in November, National Harbor, and you know, please come up and introduce yourself. If you come, I love to meet new people at AMLE conferences. It's a great conference. You can find me on social media at pfagel. I have a website that has my email at phyllisfagel.com. My books are anywhere books are sold, uh, including the new one, Middle School Superpowers. And I'm going to be a little OCD here, Will, but I never answered your question about toxic positivity. Oh, come back to it. Yeah, do it. So I'm going to just jump in and share the difference. And that will be my parting piece of information as well, because I do think it's an important thing to distinguish from helping when you're talking about helping kids. So when someone comes to you, a kid comes to you and says that they're struggling, they're having a hard time, often our inclination is to be like, oh, don't worry about it, it'll get better, this, this too shall pass. And that is a false, a false assurance. So not only does it dismiss their concern instead of validating how they feel, but we also are saying something that we can't know is true. It's much more effective when kids are struggling to say something to them like, you know, that sounds really hard. You know, I'd love to try to support you. Can we brainstorm some resources that might be useful to you or some other people who you think might be helpful? And that way, that authenticity is how we avoid being toxically positive. What a great way to wrap that up. Principal Matters listeners, I want you to think about um, in today's conversation, the power of authentic relationships and how they work in every setting because um, they don't just work in, they're not just effective in how we relate to students in ways that really help them, but they're also effective in the ways that we relate to everyone. So think about your teachers, think about your colleagues, your fellow admin members, think about your counselors, think about the parents that you're gonna interact with. And Phyllis, what a wonderful way to, to wrap up, which is let's not give people false impressions of the possibilities for the future. Um, let's acknowledge what they're going through, and then let's figure out what are some realistic responses that we can give people that, and some tangible things too, which is why I'm just going to tell listeners right now that you need to go online and buy this book, the superpower, Middle School Superpowers, because Phyllis Fagel is one of the most, not prolific, you are a very prolific author, but you are one of the most practical authors and, and presenters that I've ever seen, Phyllis, when it comes to just filling your content chock full of like, you can do this. Here are some things you can actually do. So it's not just ideas, but it's practice. So thank you so much for your expertise. Thank you so much for what you're doing for education. Principal Matters listeners, thank you for doing what matters. And we'll talk to you again next week. Thank you. You can find free resources like this one at my website at williamdparker.com. Check out the services link on williamdparker.com to learn more about Leadership Academies, Mastermind Offerings, and Executive Coaching. If you're planning professional development for the year ahead, or you're looking for keynote presentations from any of my books, please email me at will at williamdparker.com. Thank you for learning together today, and thanks again for doing what matters.